Hello, I'm Mitch Kokai filling in for Mark Rodderman. Coming up on Front Row, we'll discuss the impact of this week's election results on North Carolina. Next. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Rodderman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, N.C. Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Donna King with Carolina Journal, political analyst Joe Stewart, State Senator Jay Chaudhary, and Anna Bevan Gravely of NC Free. Thanks to all of you for joining us. We're going to start with the marquee matchup in North Carolina, which was the big U.S. Senate race. We know that with the retirement of Republican Richard Burr, there was an open seat. And in this race, the Republican Congressman Ted Budd defeated the Democrat, uh, former state Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley. Donna, what was significant about this race? Sure, absolutely. So uh, I think the numbers that it came in, you know, uh, Congressman Ted Budd, now Senator-elect Ted Budd, uh, got about 51 percent of the vote there to uh, Sherry Beasley, former North Carolina Chief Justice, got about 47 percent. Um, I think one of the interesting things about this is it came in right about where it was polling in the days ahead of the election. And this was so tight. It had been neck and neck all summer, really focused heavily on, you know, who had the right message, where were they going? Uh, then there at the end, it started to split off. Ted Budd did a 100-county tour. I think that made a big difference. Uh, Sherry Beasley really was tapping into that endorsement she had from Democrat Governor Roy Cooper. Um, in the end, I really think it came down to messaging. Ted Budd stuck very, very closely to his inflation, crime. Those messages, I think, resonated with North Carolina voters. Uh, uh, Sherry Beasley focused much on uh, abortion access. Uh, so in the end, Te uh, Ted Budd really carried it across the finish line. Joe, what stood out to you? Yeah, this was a race where I think national Democrats felt very strongly that Sherry Beasley was the best choice, and there was a little bit of the clearing of the deck of other Democratic candidates in this primary to give Beasley a clean flight to head up against Bud. Interestingly enough, though, it didn't seem like national Democrats really rallied around Beasley as much as they did in some other high-profile states like Nevada and Arizona and Pennsylvania. Um, to some extent, I think uh, it probably was a, a, a race for Bud to lose, just given the dynamic of North Carolina's political landscape. The margin doesn't surprise me as much, but the fact that it didn't seemingly help other down-ballot Republicans was kind of interesting to me. Jay Chaudhary, uh, from the Democratic perspective, obviously Sherry Beasley, this is the first time she had made a statewide run in a political office. She had one statewide office running as a judge or a justice. Uh, she seemed to make a pretty good showing, though, and for a long time this was really seen like a, a race that could be the Democrats to win. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think the the trajectory the difference we saw from the summer to the to the to election day clearly changed for uh, Justice Beasley. I mean, you know, my takeaway are two things. One is Donna's exactly right. Actually, if you look at other U.S. Senate races versus the U.S. Senate race here, the polls pretty were pretty accurate in predicting what the outcome of this race was, which I think was just reflective of the dynamic of the race itself. And secondly, it's my sense that there was an underperformance of Democratic turnout in urban areas such as Mecklenburg and Wake County. And look, I think that rings a real alarm bell for Democrats, because if we want to be competitive in statewide races and we'll be talking about judicial races, uh, Democrats have to do something about getting turnout up. 
A.B., what stood out to you about this race? Um, actually, I think it was most interesting that um, Bud was the only Trump-endorsed candidate that won on Election Day in North Carolina. Um, additionally, um, the amount of money, the fundraising difference between the two, Sherry Beasley and her campaign raised about two and a half times more than Bud did. Um, there was a lot of conversation early on about how IE money didn't show up for her. Um, more IE money came in for um, Ted Budd. But really, what we have to remember is IE money doesn't go as far as campaign money. And so campaign money, she was able to get more for it. So it's a better bang for your buck. That, those are the two really main things that stood out to me from this election. And let's have a follow-up on that because mm -hmm. you mentioned that the IE money doesn't go as far and explain for us why that is. It's because the, the, you, ha you can be charged a higher rate. For yes, that, exactly. yeah, inside campaign funds are, um, are charged at a different rate, at a lower rate than, than PAC or independent expenditure money, which is why we're typically going to have to see way more IE and PAC money show up in these elections to have the same kind of impact that it would on a campaign. Sure, and Bud got a lot more uh, independent outside of the state money. Bud got in the sixty million ish for yeah. independent expenditure. Sherry Beasley got around twenty two million. Um, so you saw a lot of that coming in for Bud that that Beasley wasn't getting, even though internally in the state she had higher fundraising rates. Joe, does this make this the case that if you're looking at comparing the two candidates now, you really shouldn't just look at what the two candidates themselves raise. You really have to compare apples to apples by putting what they raise themselves plus what's being spent for them in IE? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the outside money can make a significant difference if there is some significantly greater sum being spent as it was in the case here. The challenge too is, of course, independent expenditure money, you can't coordinate with the campaign. So issues like message and theme and those sorts of things, sometimes it doesn't have quite the same impact. I think we saw the value for Ted Budd in the Republican primary where he had a significant amount of outside support come in and that made a real difference for him because at the end of the day, even though, as Anna Bevan mentions, you pay a higher rate, the name recognition that you get, particularly in a primary from outside spending like that, is really helpful because then the voters know your name. All right, let's go ahead and shift gears now. Uh, a very interesting discussion. But let's turn now to the U.S. House of Representatives, where uh, we have now 14 seats, gained an extra seat because of the last census. And if you had looked at a map that the Republicans had drawn for the congressional races before there were lawsuits, uh, there was a lot of thought that perhaps Republicans could win 10 of the seats and Democrats four, as it turned out, with a court-imposed map, seven Republicans, seven Democrats, an even split. Joe Stewart, what did you think uh, really stood out from this? Well, of the 14 districts, the one that was considered to be the most competitive, the 13th district, which includes a portion of Wake County, Harnett, Johnston, and Wayne counties, uh, an interesting matchup there, Wiley Nicholas, state senator. And as the senator mentioned before we started taping the show, I hadn't really thought about this, but across our congressional delegation that we now have five state senators that will be in our congressional delegation. As you pointed out, 10% of the state Senate is now serving in our delegation. But the 13th district, which was considered to be most competitive, proved to be uh, not as much as we would have thought. Looking at Bo Hines, a candidate, the Republican, who perhaps a little flawed, came from outside of the district. That knock was, he's not from here kind of thing. He did not do as well in some of the key parts of that district as Ted Budd did in the U.S. Senate race, and that maybe was the difference. But looking across the state, none of the other results were really surprising. It was more or less what we knew from the partisan ratings of those districts, what voter dispositions would lend in terms of who they're likely to support, Democrat or Republican. 
Republican. Uh, but, we, you know, we go to Congress with a relatively strong delegation now. The thing we're not thinking about because it's an election, we've got some really strong incumbent Republican members of our delegation, Richard Hudson and David Rouse or Virginia Fox, Patrick McHenry, that will be in significant leadership positions and committee chair positions should the Republicans take control of the U.S. House, which seems pretty likely at this point. Senator Jay Choudhury, uh, there were three races that some people were looking at as possible, really hotly contested races that could go one way or the other. The Democrats won all of those. So if you weren't thrilled with what happened in some other elections, Democrats had to be pretty happy about what happened with these congressional races. Yeah, look, I, I think as a general rate, uh, as a general observation, what materialized on election night for the U.S. House races is the fact that the red wave didn't really materialize. I think there was concerns on the Democratic side that you might see some of the other members actually lose. Uh, Senator Don Davis running in the eastern part of the state and even Kathy Manning at some point. I think there was concern about whether she would lose. And I think, as Joe mentioned, Wiley Nickel. But at the end of the day, I think because because the red wave didn't materialize. We have an even 7-7 split, as you said. I think one of the interesting takeaways is with Wiley Nichols' win that Joe talked about, most outside analysts thought he would lose that race. And I think in hindsight, if you take it apart, I think it's attributed to two reasons. One is I think Bo Hines was viewed as a carpetbagger, I think, by a lot of Republicans in that district. And secondly, I think Wiley Nichols probably wrote the coattails on Sidney Batch, who was in a very competitive Southern Wake County seat. Very interesting. Uh, Anna Bevan, what, uh, really stood out to you about these U.S. House races? Yeah, I was looking at, at um, NC District 1 and then NC District 13. Those are the two that we've touched on a little bit. But um, I'm from eastern North Carolina, and so one was especially interesting, um, as that was what we discussed a lot around the, the dinner table. Um, but I was really struck by, um, one, the bounce house ad from Wiley Nickel. I think that was one of the best ads that was played this cycle. Um, and it really set the tone for his campaign moving forward. He's a family man. He just wants to be normal um, and help people come together, whether that was real or not. That's the message he was telling, and I think he did it pretty well. And additionally, um, Don Davis really played an authentic card. He played, um, which is something that we, we'll see as we got, get to some of the General Assembly races, but um, there's something very interesting about these, all of these elections that we're talking about is there's a strain and a string that I think exists with voters really caring about the authenticity of candidates in a way that we haven't before um, and really wanting to see good people represent us, which is why we saw jumping around a lot in um, all the way down the ballot. Donna, we've got about 30, 45 seconds sure. for your thoughts. Well, I think it's important to note one, I agree. I think in, in 13, the one that we're all looking at, mm -hmm. um, Bo Hines was probably not uh, the one that could carry that race because they would Republicans would have had an 8-6 split had he been able to get that. The other thing is, is that it's important to note that these particular maps are, are going to be redrawn probably in the next uh, congressional <laughs> district. So I think I've in heard... In fact, when they were set, they, they've they said, were drawn the by Democrat said judges. Only, yeah. only for this cycle. Yeah, exactly. They're only for this cycle. It's, you know, an etch a sketch kind of situation and we may see these uh, you know get rearranged that said probably people like Don Davis would likely survive GK Butterfield held that seat for many many years rarely lost by 11, less than 70 percent so there will be some things left but this map will be redrawn likely and it will be redrawn by the General Assembly so let's move mm -hmm. to legislative races now right. uh, we saw that uh, going into this Republicans control both chambers of the General Assembly they needed to gain two seats in the state Senate to get a veto-proof supermajority, three seats in the state House for the same thing. They did get a net gain of two in the Senate. 
uh, got a net gain of two on the House, so one vote shy of a supermajority in the State House. The only person at this table who will be affected directly by these election <laughs> results is our State Senator. Uh, your thoughts on these elections? I mean, look, I, I think the election ultimately in both chambers was about whether Democrats could prevent a supermajority so they could protect Governor Cooper's veto. And as you mentioned, the, uh, the bad news on the state Senate side is that the Senate Democrats fell one vote shy. Now there are 20 Senate Democrats, 30 Republicans, um, enough to override Governor Cooper's veto. The good news is the House Republicans did not reach the magic number of 72, so they fell one vote shy. Um, in order to override Governor Cooper's veto. And so Governor Cooper now, by the thinnest of margins, is able to protect um, his veto. I think if there's one takeaway from this race, it's that Republicans have to try to make inroads into suburban uh, counties, places such as Northern and Southern Wake, which were co hotly contested races. And if there's one takeaway from Democrats is they've got to make inroads into suburban rural counties in order to uh, compete in these very competitive Senate races and deciding who's gonna take control of each chamber. We're really talking about elections, but since we have you here, what sort of impact is it going to have on the way the legislature does its business not having supermajorities versus having them? Look, I, I mean, I think it's a great question, uh, given that you have it in one chamber, not the other. My sense is you may have a takeaway where you may take votes on social issues that are controversial, but they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to override the governor's veto. But on the other hand, you're going to see Democrats probably come together on budget and economic development issues. Mm -hmm. It may be more of the same, um, and it may be more of the same that helps contribute to our great business climate, because I think the bipartisanship that we've had in the last two years have actually worked. Anna Bevan, your thoughts about the legislative races? Yeah, I was mostly paying attention to the races that the governor got involved in. He got involved in five Senate races and one House race. And that was an unprecedented move. We've, we've seen that talked about through this whole cycle. The governor got involved in two primaries um, to have two Democrat incumbents defeated. And, and then we saw ads run by the governor um, toward the end of the cycle. I think they were a little too late actually. They were a mixed bag um, of results. Um, but most interestingly, he started in Wilmington with those ads. And I think there's a strategy beyond that goes to that, where Wilmington is the smallest media market, the least expensive media market. And you can really test the value and the impact of those ads there. Um, and then that's yeah, very, yeah. very interesting stuff. Donna, sure. your thoughts about sure. legislative races? Well, I mean, first, I can't imagine what the pressure is going to be on that Democrat caucus. Everybody's got to show up for every vote. <laughs> and uh, there's going to be, because, yeah. you know, one vote shy of overriding a veto is a big deal. So there's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure, both from the governor and from the majority party. Uh, I was watching some of those races that moved from Republican to toss-up in the last mm -hmm. maps, and, and Republicans took all of the ones uh, that, were, that became toss-ups in these maps and even took some of the ones that lean Democrat. Uh, so those races really showed that even though Republicans did not have a majority walking into the map, they walked away with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, or supermajority. Um, and it's important to note that as they start to talk about January and getting back into session, some of the issues they were already talking about, uh, whether it's Medicaid expansion or taxes or whatever, they've decided, look, we need to go talk to some of these new members that are coming in and see where they stand. 
Joe, your thoughts? Yeah, I hate to be the one to say this, but, you know, the day after the 2022 election is the first day of the 2024 election. <laughs> and, Shocker. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> and, and significant to that is the fact that the Republican majorities in the General Assembly have an eye towards 2024, where it will be a slightly different political landscape. We'll have a presidential contest on the ballot, but no U.S. Senate race. And given the way the governor's race is shaping up, we may have three down-ballot vacancies in the Council of State. So we really robust election, even though there's no U.S. Senate race uh, for that particular election cycle. So Republicans in their, what I would say, practically have a supermajority, even being one vote shy in the House, the ability to find a Democrat who might be willing to go with a veto override given the subject matter or the fact that the state's pretty flush with cash makes it possible for perhaps some really worthy project in a district to receive some funding <laughs> in exchange for a Democrat's willingness to go along with the Republican override on the House side. But I, I think the Republicans are going to want to focus on building a good program going into 2024. So even with the practical supermajorities, probably a focus, at least in large part, on things that really make a difference that they can raise money on. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Let's move on now to the next set of elections that we're going to be talking about, judicial races. We know there were two important seats on the North Carolina Supreme Court that were up for election. In both cases, the Republicans won uh, with Trey Allen unseating the incumbent uh, Sam J. Irvin IV and uh, Richard Dietz beating fellow appeals court Judge Lucy Inman. Republicans also sweeping the four appeals court races. What stood out to you, Anna Beth? Uh, one, this was the most important race. Um, the general, or excuse me, the Supreme Court races at um, either one was massively important for a shift in political ideology on the courts. It's going to change how the General Assembly works moving forward. But I think what I was most struck by was how virtually identical the percentages were. They were like two tenths of a point off mm-hmm. um, on both for both races. And the appeals court races were close, too, the, with Donna yeah. Stroud a little bit higher than everyone yes. else, but otherwise... And I think her her bump was due to... She had a really messy primary, and so I think her name recognition was a little higher due to that process. But um, Lucy Inman has been praised throughout this election cycle for running a really good campaign, very strategic, very um, practiced, and all of the work that she did, she got exactly the same as as Inman, I mean, as Irvin. And I think there's there's something to that. I'm not really quite sure, but I think party affiliations really mattered more than anything else on these courts. Donna? Absolutely. I, I completely agree. But I think the biggest question is, is from here, the General Assembly uh, has also said that this is a critical race for them because it may change, may adjust mm-hmm. how they are uh, approaching legislation because they will no longer, in theory, have to go defend the constitutionality every mm-hmm. time somebody doesn't like their bill or a group doesn't like their, their piece of uh, legislation. Instead, they will be Uh, you know, they will get deference that it's constitutional unless argued otherwise, rather than everything being legislated through the court. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's one big important part about it. But you're right. These very, very close percentages indicate that maybe we underestimated the North Carolina voter. They were paying attention. Uh, They knew what was going on. And uh, and you can see it when we go all the way down to school boards and county commissioner and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, North Carolinians are well informed in many of these races. And in this case, they really swept all of those statewide judicial races. 
Joe? Yeah, there was much uh, talked about this being a red wave election. First midterm of a mm -hmm. president typically goes against the party control of the White House, and there was some expectation. You can insert whatever appropriate adjective before the word red wave now. All the analysts are saying it was either just a, a ankle lapper versus a tsunami. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever analogy you want red to use. Red mist was sure. one of my favorite yeah. ones. <laughs> but I think to some extent there was a red wave where it mattered. And in the judicial races, I think it mattered. I think voters in North Carolina were looking at the partisan identity of these judicial candidates and said, this matters to us. And many times we talk about the political affiliation of judges, but there is judicial temperament. I mean, some part of their philosophy about the way the Constitution applies. It, it does follow in a continuum in many ways like political ideology does. And to some extent, you could say partisan identity is a proxy for judicial temperament as far as that goes. But I think in the judicial races, people were interested in seeing Republicans elected into those positions. Whether or not they felt like that mattered for some other reason, the ability to not have cases brought before them as the Democratic majority Supreme Court had uh, that overturned legislative decisions. That may be not the nuance that voters understood, but in this particular election, being a Republican judge made a difference. Senator, I'm guessing this was one of the major disappointments for North Carolina Democrats on, on the night. Yeah, no, I, look, absolutely, and, and I think Joe's right to characterize it as a web, red wave for judicial races, but my, you know, my theory on this is different than Donna's because I think, one, I think the judicial races may be the most, most pure reflection of partisanship um, in our counties because I think, as A.B. has pointed out, which I think is fascinating, is you can have a candidate like Lucy Inman who's raised north of $2.5 million, and then other judicial candidates who've raised nothing, and they end up with the exactly the same margin of difference, which should, uh, you know, so I, I think that's point number one, and I think point number two is, I mean, this really kind of completes a sweep that the Republicans started before 2020. I mean, we have to remind ourselves that Democrats had control of the court uh, six to one, and now it's reversed to five, five, two, um, going, going into, uh, going into next year. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. We're now going to shift gears. We've been talking about the major races on the ballots in North Carolina, but we wanted to take some time to talk about some other elections that might have attracted your attention, uh, things that we might consider to be underreported, or if you want to mention people who you think are particularly up or down after the uh, latest election cycle. Let's start with Donna. Absolutely. So I was really watching through this process the school boards. So we all know after the government shutdowns of public schools, mm -hmm. um, it really ignited an entire generation of parents who maybe didn't pay attention before. And they saw now that very local races in school board, county commission, things like that, um, that those impacted their families directly, put their kids behind in school. So school boards is something I was really watching. There was a swell coming. Uh, New Hanover County had an interesting situation. New Hanover County uh, had a Republican sweep of school board members. They're now five to two Republican. Uh, some so two Democrat incumbents lost their races. Um, they really are seeing a wave for Wilmington of... of uh, <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, just, um, so the, so, but I think it's something that we're going to be seeing more of. Wake County had a few more Republicans elected to the school board. Mecklenburg County did too. Um, so those races, I think, are critically important because they're closest to the family. Joe, what else should we know about this election? Well, I don't know if I mentioned this, but you know, the 2024 election cycle started right after Election Day. Did I mention that previously? I'm interested beyond the, the borders of North Carolina, how the presidential contest of 2024 is going to shape up as a result of this particular election. Uh, uh, President Trump has announced he's going to say something November 15th about what his intentions are. Uh, President Biden has now said sometime after the first of the year. It's not lost on me that Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, in his announcement 
of his success in running for re-election in the Senate intimated that perhaps he'd be interested in running for president. Certainly Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, just won overwhelmingly known to be a candidate for president. But we may start to see some other Democrats floating their names out as well. Folks that have done particularly well in this particular election cycle. Based on whenever it is we set up our primary for 2024 in North Carolina, we could become a destination for a lot of these candidates looking to win a prize jewel like North Carolina in a contested presidential primary if it should come to pass that neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump are the actual nominees. Senator, what else should we know about this election? Well, is the 2024 election starting? Because uh, I, I, have, I have thoughts on that, too. Uh, look, not, not on presidential, but gubernatorial um, race. I think the gubernatorial race starts this week, and I think we're going to probably win witness one of the most interesting, expensive, and potentially combative race in our state history. And I look, I think if you're a Republican, uh, Ted Budd aside, and you look at what just happened with Trump-endorsed candidates like uh, Kerry Lake, and Doug Mastriano, you have to you have to ask whether it makes sense for Republicans to nominate someone like Rob, Mark Robinson, who's much more combative, or someone like Treasurer Dale Falwell, who's been focused on governing. And if you're a Democrat, as I mentioned, uh, you've really got to ask what we can do to drive turnout, because we have not had success, uh, certainly when it comes to Cal Cunningham, Sherry Beasley, and judicial races. Um, I think whoever the nominee has to really focus on making sure we drive turnout going into 2024. Thanks, baby. Uh, I really think the unaffiliated voter, which we all love to talk about the unaffiliated voter, but I think we learned a little bit more about them this year. Um, they are definitely pickier than we're giving them credit for. They're much more nuanced um, in the, like, the Bud Wiley-Nickel voter. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a real thing. I think that the um, overall unaffiliated, they're showing up for early voting in a lot of these districts. It was about a third, a third, a third. And they're, they're very passionate. They're not undecided about anything. They know exactly what they want and what they think in this prize jewel concept of North Carolina. I feel like we're going to become the new Iowa, where everyone is going to have to meet the candidate to be able to vote for the candidate. Um, and so I think our, how we talk to and about unaffiliated voters is changing rapidly. Uh, you, you can't overstate the split sure. ticket voter, especially yeah. if you look at Georgia, where Kemp won by a huge margin, but right. you also have Warnock uh, slightly ahead. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, very interesting election, very interesting discussion, and I think our panel has covered it very well during the course of this program. Uh, we want to, on, I want to, on behalf of this panel, uh, especially thank all of our service members as we have this show that's airing for the first time on uh, Veterans Day. So I want to thank the panelists for joining us on this uh, special post-election edition of Front Row. And we want to thank you for watching. Please join us again next week. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Rotterman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, N.C. Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.